This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Catherine Johnson, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl, for having me. Now, let me introduce you. Catherine is a Tasmanian author and she has four published works under her belt. Her previous books are Pescador's Wake, The Better Son and Matryoshka. Did I get that right? You did, yeah. And her newest book, Paris Savages. The Better Son was longlisted for the Indie Book Awards in 2017 and the Tasmanian Book Prize, Premier's Literary Prizes. You've got quite a few prizes there under your belt. There, there are a few there. There's a few, um, a couple of manuscript development awards, which have been really, really key. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting in, you know, in, as you know, we talk to authors so much, but the work that goes behind getting published is competitions, entering all sorts of things, isn't it? And just keep keeping on writing, I guess. I think so. I think being persistent and keeping on is such a big part of the whole thing. So you've really got to, you've really, to be a writer, you've really got to be writing all the time, entering awards, doing all sorts of things, don't you? I think so. I think it's a really developmental process and you're building on your craft all the time, but you're also trying to somehow find rungs on the ladder to to establish yourself as a writer and a short story competition here or this kind of recognition there is all is all helpful to... Uh, bringing your work to the attention of Well, publishers. and it's all practice too, isn't mm. it? Catherine holds both arts and science degrees, has worked as a science journalist and published feature articles for magazines including Good Weekend and Living Planet. Catherine has travelled in Africa, Indonesia, Europe, Canada, China and Alaska. She also recently completed a PhD in creative writing. I mean, so obviously you don't sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little weary right now, but yeah, Paris Savages came out of a PhD, in fact. It did it? Mm, oh, so wow. so okay. six years was uh, the whole book and four of that was a, was a PhD. Yeah, wow. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Um, Paris Savages is based on a true story of human zoos, of the bachelor people from Fraser Island who were being transported to Europe to f- perform for crowds across the continent. Now, I want you to tell us that story. It's a story of love, bravery, culture and the fight against in- injustice and brings a little-known part of history to life. Tell me about the bachelor people. Yeah, it's interesting you say goosebumps. In fact, yeah. I've got them again now and that, that's and always... And you've written the book. I have and I, it keeps on doing that to me, that story, which I guess is what you need for a novel, something that's going to compel you to keep writing for the length of time it takes. And in fact, every every idea that I have that turns into a book, I always get goosebumps yeah. at the beginning. And the goosebump point for this book was really when I he- heard about a, a full body cast of this young bachelor man called Bonnie or Bonangera, which had been found in Lyon in France in the basement of a, a museum. And this man is standing there with naked with a boomerang held over his head. And that man has come from Australia. 
So he's come from Fraser Island, Queensland, Kagari in the Bachelor language. And, and yeah, so in 1882 he was taken across to Europe with two fellow uh, bachelor Ooh. people. And why were they taken? So they were to perform in ethnographic exhibitions or human, some people call them human zoos or people shows or ethnic shows, sort of different variations. And, and there was a spectrum of those kind of shows from the more exploitative to ones that were a bit more of a celebration really. But they were always, um, there was always a, an othering process that was going on, people on display. And they, was, they started off in Germany. Was it because of their difference? Very much so. So they went to Europe, they started off in Germany mm-hmm. and it's very likely they were shown by a man called Karl Hagenbeck who was mm-hmm. the person who brought people shows to Europe and they were certainly recorded as having been under his under his wing um, in a German newspaper article that was about a performance that they gave at the Dresden Zoo, would you believe? But Karl Hagenbeck... And these were humans. Yes. So that the, And they were taken against their will. Well, it's not clear whether this group were taken against their will or not. And some of the records suggest that there was quite a trusting relationship between Bonnie and Lewis Muller, the German man who took them across. And it's one of those things where, sadly, we don't have enough information to know. And I, I, I don't want to deny the people the opportunity to have had some kind of say in what they were doing or make them completely victims in the story. Um, That's cert- hard to write then, isn't it's it? It's really hard to write. People were certainly, people were taken against their will though. There were people mm. from further north in Queensland, from Palm and Hinchinbrook Island, who were also taken for people shows in America to be shown by Barnum, who we would have heard about in The Greatest Showman. Mm-hmm. They were also shown in Europe and it seems they were probably taken against their will. They tried to leave the boat in Sydney and... and um, I think were made to get back on. There were some reports in Sydney about that kind of thing and they really weren't well treated. So they were stolen from their families really. It's, it seems like that that group it wasn't wasn't a it wasn't a great experience at all. There's a fantastic book about that by Rosalind Poignant called Professional Savages. Um, but the group that I'm writing about, it's not clear whether there was really coercion involved and certainly some of the people who were shown in the people shows signed contracts and they were they were paid and they had say over how they were shown, went back and brought more members of their family back to Europe to be shown. So it wasn't always a victim kind of scenario, um, but sometimes it was and sometimes people were really poorly treated. People died of disease over there, certainly. And it sort of depended on who was showing them and where and who they were as to how well treated they were or not. There was quite a spectrum of, of shows. But they were all about, um, they were certainly all people on display and an othering process. Mm. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like. And that that image just keeps coming to my mind of this man there, sta- you know, holding a boomerang over his head so far from home. And, you know, what would that experience have been like? I mean, life at home was horrible too in some respects in that colonisation was in full flight and there had been massacres and and there were to be more in Queensland. And so what they were leaving behind um, was a place that was, you know, a very difficult environment as well. Mm -hmm. So how did this come to you? So where did you, how did you start this book? So there was a fantastic documentary on ABC Away called Cast Among Strangers. It actually went on and won a bronze medal in New York mm-hmm. um, for, for its work and it, it identified what... I, I talked about the cast of Bonnie being found and I subsequently went to France and saw the cast and it talked about some of the, the places in Europe where they went and, and so that was just... To me that was such an eye-opener because I, I'd known about 
human remains and that awful trade of human remains that went on in the 19th century, but I hadn't really known about people going across as living exhibits Mm. and curiosities. And it's interesting um, talking to people from Europe. They've got more of a sense of, oh, yes, of course, that, you know, that went on. It was such a mass form of entertainment. There were 35,000 performers from around the world who were shown throughout the 19th century into the 20th century in Europe and America. What did they do on stage? So, well, the Aboriginal people... The Butchler people threw boomerangs and danced and sang. So in Germany it was very much, um, and under Karl Hagenbeck, it was very much a case of trying to show he wanted people to be, in inverted commas, natural and exotic and, and these kind of things. So he would bring the animals from people's homelands and not so much for the Aboriginal people but people from Africa and so on. Um, but this group would, would da- dance and sing and Bonnie um, climbed trees that were similar to the trees. Well, there were poles erected to resemble trees that might have been like those satinays and so on on Fraser Island. Um, so, yeah, through spears. They'd, they'd attach like a sack to a tree and he would throw a spear to, into the sack. Some of the last reports of him were in, in France um, on his own throwing boomerangs and people in the audience would try and do the same and no one could do it except for this one English guy who kind of was able to do it and people were marvelling at the fact that that, that they couldn't do this thing. Mm, extraordinary. So you got the seed of the idea there and then how did you start the process of writing? Yeah, so this is this was a very difficult decision for me Ooh. with telling this story because I'm not an Indigenous Australian person and trying to work out what the next step is about how to tell this story and how to do it respectfully, I felt it was a story that needed to be told and explored. It had been to an extent on, on that radio documentary but I think fiction brings another, another element um, to those stories and those histories and there's, there wasn't really very much known on the historical record. And fiction allows you to get into the those the emotional the emotional side of these stories and the human side of the stories and the the deeper truths that that they are all about really. So I had to think how how to tell the story and how to tell it respectfully, not to silence the past. I mean, none of the performers' um, viewpoints are recorded at all. There's there, in terms of all of the people exhibited, there's a very, very few performer accounts of what it was like for them. There's a performer diary by a man from Labrador, an Inuit man, and and that's quite that's really quite informative. But of course, you can't um, extend that to everybody's experience. So were they in the same group? <clears throat> no, they preceded um, oh, the Butchler okay. group, and and they that group all sadly died in Europe of disease. So I had to work out how to, who to tell, who, which would be the voice to tell the story through. Mm. And so I ended up choosing um, a fictional character, Hilda Muller, who's the daughter of Lewis Muller. So Lewis Muller was an engineer who worked in Australia for some 18 years. He's not fictional though. <clears throat> no, he's no. real. He's real, yeah. There's not a, lot, not a lot known about him. Yeah. And so I've made up his daughter, Hilda, and his wife, Crystal, mm-hmm. And so Hilda has a, has a bit more of an insight than her father did in a way as sort mm. of young younger people tend to have a bit more of a maybe an open mind or a fresh perspective than maybe their parents might. And so she she has more access to the Butchler group in terms of more of a friendship really, more of a, an understanding. And so she, she tries to 
I suppose she's trying to see this story, this the story of taking the people across as something that she hopes is going to be something that's a positive experience. So she starts off quite naively and, in fact, the, the bachelor group um, in the story, and I'm quite careful at the back of the book to say this is what the known record is and this is where the fiction begins. In the story, the drive for Bonnie, the main character, or Bonangera, is to go to the Queen of England and plead the case for his people back home because of what's what's going on with colonialisation and, and massacres and potentially the loss of their home really. So so Hilda is kind of swept up in that idea and thinking that that is something that she would she would support. She starts off naively and that's that's who we hear most of the story through. There's also this other viewpoint that's like a ghost storyteller that that has another perspective that's not an aboriginal point of view. So I haven't I haven't gone into an aboriginal point of view in the story at all. But that ghostly perspective tries to, um, it, it kind of asks questions and points at the silences and says, hang on, there's another story here that we haven't told. And I, I don't know, I, I can't know what it is, but I can see that there's a, there's a big gap here in our understanding of this story. Mm, I can see why it took you so long to write the book. Yes, it because was. Because it is complex, but it's mm. a beautiful read at the same time. It's not complex to read, but there's a lot there, isn't there? With the bachelor people, are there descendants now? There are, um, yes. There's a strong bachelor community, um, Fraser Island and Harvey Bay and around that area, Maryborough. Um, and so I spoke to bachelor people th- before I started, yes, yeah. and, and, and then had some checking done in the process of writing the book and checked the language and and sought permission to quote a couple of um, extracts from a book called The Legends of Mooney Jal, which is a, a bachelor book of legend material that's been written. Oh, wow. And that, and that relationship was good for you? Were they open to the story being told? Oh, I think it's a really important um, conversation to have with the yeah. local community and, and I feel very um, grateful for the time that people gave to me in, ch- in terms of checking and, um, and yes, the the um, enthusiasm actually about putting some of those quotes from the legends of Mooney Jail in the book I think um, adds to it yeah. a lot and it's an authentic voice that I didn't feel able to um, to write. I didn't feel that I was equipped to write that voice so to have a couple of those quotes I think is, is a more authentic way of doing that. Mm. You know, in the world where uh, cultural appropriation is being used uh, a lot, um, you must have been nervous. Were you nervous about that? Yeah, I was very nervous about how to yeah. do this book, but I was also nervous about... Because you want to be respectful the whole time. It was incredibly important to, to be respectful. and um, But I also, the more I thought about it, the more I felt it was disrespectful to avoid the story as well. I did, I did have a... In one of the very early drafts, I had the story and it was just through... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hilda's point of view. And I felt like I was just repeating the silences of the past in a way that I wasn't acknowledging that there are other stories that have been silenced. So I had to somehow find a way of bringing those stories from the periphery more centrally in the story, mm. um, but without appropriating an Aboriginal point of view. So it was a really tricky, and it, it's actually occupied most of my thinking time and mm. most of my writing and experimenting with the writing to try and get that balance right of of not not having people be invisible um, in the story, uh, but not trying to tell their story either yeah. to say this is how it was, but a wondering of, I wonder if this is how it was. Yeah. Marcia Langton makes a really good point in an essay that she wrote for the Film Commission about um, the the easiest and most natural form of racism in terms of representation is making the other invisible. And so I really wanted to avoid doing that. But I also wanted to make sure that there was a, um, as you say, it's Although the story is embedded in all this research and it's and it's historical and and so on, and and there are darknesses. I wanted to make sure that there were also there was also a lot of light and joy. And Bonnie, the main character, is quite um, good at mocking the crowd in some ways. Ooh. There are some quite funny scenes where he he asserts his um, his power in the circumstance and some agency over his shown uh, over how he's shown. So those ideas of resilience and courage and bravery and um, and there's you know, there's love and connection absolutely and all yeah. that kind of thing to make it a it's a, a really I mean fiction fiction has to be about human emotion and and human story and it's a story that's the beating heart of the book. It is indeed. I want to go back to that um, to the fine line between making people invisible and not mm. because I I would think that to make them invisible would be easier. Because then, in a way, you're not going to offend anybody, are you, if you don't talk about it? It it might be it might be easier, but it didn't feel right either. It no. felt it felt more it felt like more of a racist act actually to yeah. continue that erasure of history than to I mean it required a lot of thought and a lot of hard work to to try and to try and walk that line. But I feel like I feel like Non-Indigenous Australians have to do some of that work as well. Tell me, this book, Paris Savages, how many years in the making? So six years all up. The PhD was four. So I started researching and I had a talk with the Bachelor Academic I was speaking about before I started writing, started playing with a draft before the PhD, but then, yeah, the PhD was four years and then editing post post that. So six years all up. It's quite quite a long journey. It is quite a long journey. Talk to me about the beginning of your career. What led you to writing? Because you've done quite a bit. I mean, you've. So, did you graduate as a journalist? So I did. I, I at university I studied science and journalism. I did a, a double degree in science and arts. And is then, that unusual? Uh, it was at the time. I had to. I I was a bit indecisive and I couldn't really choose. Yeah. I love will bio- I be a scientist or will I be a journalist? <laughs> Which I one? love biology <laughs> and I love writing. I love the creative side of that. I've got a mum who's an artist, right? And and that creative drive was there. I didn't want to choose between them, so I spoke to the deans of both, and was able to get permission to do that. In Tasmania? No, that was in Queensland, in Brisbane, okay, right. at UQ. Yep. And then I did my honours in science, yeah, marine science, 
ended up working at CSIRO for a long time doing science journalism. So yeah. brought the two together. So that was perfect, really. That was you were enjoying the writing and enjoying I was. the science. So I was a science communicator. I still yeah. am a science communicator. And did a bit of freelancing as well. But when I was at CSIRO, that's when I was researching stories like the illegal um, fishing of Patagonian toothfish in the Southern Ocean. Yes. And there was that chase of the, there was an, a Uruguayan boat that was pursued all the way to South Africa almost by an Australian patrol boat. And so I was writing that in the non-fiction sense and that's where I, I started thinking, hang on, there's another story here that needs to be told. It's the personal story, the human story and the drama around that. And that's what led to Pescador's Wake. So that's when I that's when I morphed into becoming a fiction writer, and and yes, once that once that bug bit, I I couldn't really let that go. Um, tell me the difference, you know, for you, what has been the difference in terms of being a journalist and being a fiction writer? I suppose being a fiction writer offers f- freedom of the imagination, and you can just explore stories in a different way than you can if it's non-fiction. And I'm thinking now that's probably why in my afterword or epilogue of every book, I tend to try and if there's a, a factual element, which there often is, I, f- I feel this obligation to the reader to to distinguish between them, to say yes. this is where the fact ends and the fiction starts. And that might be because of my science journalism background that I've, I feel like I need to make sure the facts are right. And I was really quite careful with that in this book to make sure that the all that all that you have to be don't you I think yeah. I think it's really important um but then but then fiction allows you know these deeper explorations which I also feel are important so it's a it's a it is a different kind of a different kind a different part of your brain I think almost that lights yeah. up when you're yeah. when you're writing creatively yeah well I mean they usually say it's either or as well I mean you, you know usually it's science and creativity don't come into the same no, um, that's that's certainly same um, sentence. Even I no. mean, you know, I mean, I, I think some scientists would argue that, but generally, that's our perception, isn't it? Yeah, my my husband's a scientist. He would argue that. He would say you have to be very creative to be a scientist to come up with. I mean, really, if you if you think about people coming up with innovative ideas, you've of got course. to you've got to be you've yeah. got to be creative. But um, but you're relying on facts all the time, though, aren't you? You are in looking at facts. Mm-hmm. What kind of science does he do? He's a marine scientist. Oh right, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what you studied as well. Well, I did, and yes, I eventually did get that yeah. way. I did botany and all sorts of things as well. In fact, botany took me to Fraser Island. It's a long story. Mm. Mm. I, I went to Fraser Island many years ago now, and it's it's just really a fascinating place, isn't mm. it? Oh, it's incredibly beautiful. It really is. Mm. Okay, so tell me then about um, getting your first book published because that's not that easy, is it? No, so I was I was really fortunate with my first book. Where? So that so that was Pescador's Wake, and that won a HarperCollins Veruna Manuscript Development Award. So Fantastic! That yeah. was that was really unreal, yeah. and the chance to go and work with an editor um, from HarperCollins and work up in that beautiful Veruna in the Blue Mountains Gorgeous. for ten days yeah. was a dream come true, and so lucky for your first book. I mean, it's a hard road getting a book published, and it really is. Uh, and I think most writers have an experience of you know lots of rejections and um, and it's and I think we you know we all we all share those stories but for that for that first book to have that experience was was really fortunate. And how did you get your first? Was it HarperCollins who published? Yeah, so HarperCollins yeah. um, Fourth Estate published that book. So they they I think there were five of us working up there in that program and they published I think two of those books. Right. 
and then that was that. And that was that. But then they didn't. I had uh, the next book I wrote was a very different book, which, which was actually Matryoshka, which has come out as my third book. But it was such a different book to Pescador's Wake that it wasn't sort of the natural follow up. And I put it aside for a, a number of years and actually only revisited it last last year. So that's another story in itself. I, during the process of writing Paris Savages, I um, I edited The Better Sun, which was my third book, and had that published. Right. And I also edited and revised Matryoshka and had that published. So it's it was six years in the making, Paris Savages, but there were two books that that I kind of finished off in the same time frame, which I don't. I, it's not a pattern I would I would strive to do again. Yeah, because um, your brain has to be in all those spaces. Yes, and yeah. the, I mean I did create some space to do it in that we. Um, my hus- husband had a sabbatical overseas and we took the kids out of school and um, d- I did a bit of the editing, you know, in that time. So I was able to, I would never try and do the same projects in the same day or even the same week. I'd sort of have to segment things out a bit. Um, but it is interesting how, because it's difficult, a difficult industry to be in, you kind of have to, um, you sometimes have to, things overlap, projects sometimes overlap in ways that aren't necessarily ideal, but although they, they kind of cross-pollinate each other in funny ways, I, mm. I suppose. And are you a traditional kind of writer? Are you a, like every day you approach as, as a job, you start writing at 9 or 10 o'clock and you put, is that how you approach I, writing? I do, yes, I do. I certainly don't wait for inspiration to strike. I, no. It strikes when you sit down to work and and I, I think the process of, of writing um, it's a very fascinating process, I think, the way the way thoughts come and ideas. I don't – I'm not one of those writers that knows exactly where I'm headed in, in the day necessarily. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I look forward to that fresh process of writing something freshly again. I, it's, it's quite a magical process, I think. And my process – To start a book. To start a book and even just to be writing that first draft, you know, where you're – You've got a bit of an idea where you're heading, but it's. You, I like to be not exactly sure. I like to be open to possibilities, yeah. and I tend to read the previous chapter that I've I've written to get myself back in the flow, and then and then write write forward. And sometimes that's predictable, and sometimes you know magical things happen and take you in a slightly different different way. And I know that makes a lot of a lot of writers feel a bit anxious to to do it that way. Um, but I don't know. For me, it's 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 part of the excitement and part of opening yourself up to the t- opportunities of of what, how one idea can lead to another and take you off on a on a different different journey. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, makes sense to me. Then, do you go back and edit? Then I, I do. I do lots of editing. So that's the right. downside of this approach. I think yeah. you end up doing a lot more editing than you, you would do. if you yeah. knew where you were headed f- for certain to start with. Um, and I think, you know, at a certain point, of course, too, you have to map out the whole thing and make sure that that everything makes sense in terms of the, well, not just the narrative art, but all, all the timings make sense and all everything's, you know, consistent and um, there's, you have to sort of a left brain, right brain mm. operation, I think, and they don't necessarily always happen at the same time. In terms of studying creative writing, do you feel that that has changed the way you write? Because you were writing before, weren't you, in terms of writing fiction? I'm interested to know because there are really two minds around whether people should formalise their writing in terms of undertaking a course or not. What's it done for you? It is, it is an interesting point. And for me, 
so I didn't do creative writing as an undergraduate. I came in as a PhD. So in a way, I didn't come, I didn't come to learning about it in a very formalised way. I had, I had my, my sort of organic response to it. I mean, there is a craft that you have to learn for certain. And I think it's good to be aware of that and to work on that. And, and that, you know, that does take discipline and, and work and and you're exposed to that through through a university course. It's interesting, I've actually started doing a bit of creative writing teaching just in the last six months. So that's um, that's an interesting process for me to be I part imagine, of as well. Yeah. And so I think you can you can learn aspects of the craft of writing. I think there are certain things that you can't learn mm. that are somehow, I don't know, somehow the culmination of so much of your thinking, your approach and your awareness and observation and what makes you tick and what you're curious about and it's so much more than you can put into a creative writing course. So, so yes, I think you can learn craft, you can be exposed to, um, to ideas and to, to other ways of um, thinking and to resources and to libraries and to feedback. I mean that's been a wonderful thing for me about a PhD is that you have people giving you feedback. Mm. You can present at conferences and get feedback. You can travel overseas and speak to people expert in your field. And those opportunities wouldn't have come about for me if I hadn't done a PhD. So it was the perfect um, book for a PhD for me. There was yeah. so much research involved and, and travel and thinking and um, it, it suited a PhD. Mm. I'm, I, I know I've said this before on the podcast, but I think for me um, – a book reads well um, when the craft is right and the story is right and that marriage of both those two being right. I mean, like Paris Savages, that's what you get, you know, when you when you get both of those right, that's when the story is. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. That beautiful. means a lot to hear that. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.